So this morning we're going to continue our study in 1 John. We took a bit of a break from that last week when Mr. Dietz was here. So specifically we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3, but we're also going to go back and spend a, a bit of time in the verses that Ray looked at a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter 2. So uh, Ray had finished that study in chapter 2 with a message focused on the necessity of our righteousness, and that was something that uh, resonated in me, and I've been chewing on that, uh, chewing on that since then, and uh, certainly fed into the study. But John tells us that we must continue in righteousness because it's a birthright. Uh, we are to remain in him, uh, as he says in Scripture, him being Jesus now, this is a message that's difficult to hear, and it's more difficult to put into practice and continue with it, this idea of being righteous. As Ray described, we must be living in righteousness. In Ephesians 6, Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God, including the breastplate of righteousness. So we know this is a key aspect to our, uh, our life, our walk with Christ. Um, and it's difficult and convicting to think of our sinful self in this way. Uh, as we more readily identify with Isaiah's uh, description and reaction of being in the presence of God, and this is found in Isaiah 6, chapter 5, Isaiah says, Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. And the context for this is Isaiah is having a vision and he's in the throne room of God and he recognizes how unworthy and how unrighteous he is at that time and it really uh, it affects him. But as we think about righteousness, let's consider and praise God that righteousness is not of us. Righteousness is not what I can generate myself, but Scripture shows us that it's given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. So John, in all, uh, throughout 1 John, <clears throat> speaks in very direct and simple terms. And they're not clouded in theology or expanded upon in a gradual development. <clears throat> uh, matter of fact, they're repetitive, and this repetitive directness is what makes this teaching so difficult to deliver or to hear. So today we're going to follow John's example of repeating important points. As I said, we're going to revisit these last two verses in chapter 2. And this will probably provide context as we explore the first three verses in uh, 1 John chapter 3. So and although this uh, today's uh, message is expository and it's centered on a group of verses that I'm going to present in context, it's still subject to errors being contributed by me. And... Uh, I have a passage I'm going to read from a commentator that reflect, reflects on that as how, uh, you know, how carefully we need to handle God's Word. But please keep in mind, I can introduce error, so please fact check this against the Scripture. Um, be like the Bereans, as we've uh, many times heard in Acts 17, verses 10 through 11, the end of that passage talks about the brands. It says they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And so they were receiving teaching from Paul and Silas, but they would go back and check it against the Word of God to make sure it was factual. How does it compare to the Word of God? 
<clears throat> so let's go into uh, our text this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 John. We're actually going to back up and we're going to pick up at uh, chapter 2, verse 28, and we're going to read through verse 3. Now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. You know that he is righteous. You know that everyone who practices righteousness also has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has given us that we could be called children of God, and in fact we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So let's pause for a moment of prayer and Ray, would you take us to the Lord as we go into this passage of scripture? Amen. Thank you, Ray. So let's focus for a moment on 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. We've been through these verses very thoroughly a couple weeks ago, but we'll reread these verses. Now little children remain in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, and you know that everyone and you know that everyone who practices righteousness also has been born of him. So as I said, Ray had already spent an entire message in these two verses, but these are critical to us understanding salvation and sanctification, and Ray taught, touched on both of those topics. So we'll look at these again to gain context as we go into chapter 3, and we're going to touch on a couple of points. So verse 28 can be a very convicting and scary verse for Christians. Um, in particular, when you look at the part where uh, the latter part of the verse where it says, we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. So this refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming, and drawing back from him in shame. And uh, we might wonder what that would look like. And we get a picture of that actually in Jesus' teaching about a tree and its fruit in Matthew Chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Would you turn there with me, please? Matthew chapter 7, verse Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll declare to you, to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. And uh, this is probably a passage we've all looked at before and uh, probably look past it because it's a difficult message to receive. What is that... Uh, what is it talking about in Matthew, and what does that look like? And we see an example of that in Acts 19. We, we won't turn there, but in Acts 19, there were these seven sons of Sceva who decided they were, going to, uh, they were going to prophesy in Jesus' name. And it says in Scripture, they cast out demons in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And they came, uh, came face to face with a man possessed by a demon or demons, and they uh, used this formula. We've talked about that before, the danger of trying to use a formula when you're, uh, when you're trying to walk with God. So they used this formula they'd used before, and they, they tried to cast out this demon, and they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, cast you out. And uh, I'm paraphrasing now. And the demon responded, I know who Paul is, and I know who, and I know who Jesus is. Who are you? And uh, they, this, uh, they were beaten, stripped of their clothes, and they ran away. So they were, uh, uh, they were trying to practice, uh, uh, intellectually practice walking with God, and they had a formula they were going to use to do that, but it didn't work. For us as well, and this is part of the message where this might step on some toes. I had someone else look at this, and they said, this might not be, be very well received, but this was put on my heart to bring this. There are many teachings that are offered to make us feel that salvation is easily obtained and we could be comfortable during that process. A slang term for that is easy believism, where uh, something, something that's so precious uh, to us and that costs God so much should be easy for us. And uh, one of the teachings associated with this. I've seen this, actually saw this expression on a greeting card. There are many ways to heaven. You know, absolutely false. Um, a teaching that many of us have seen is if you come forward, you say this particular prayer and you're baptized, you're saved. And that's the end of it. That's sometimes referred to as hell insurance. There needs to be more to it than that. And uh, Ray touch, touched on this a couple weeks ago. You can't just stop, stop there and then go out of the door of the church and think you're good forever. Um, one, that's, uh, one that's very popular is once saved, always saved. And uh, that is a true saying, but only in a biblical context. Let's look at John chapter 10, verse 27. Many times what you'll hear quoted here when someone is referencing this, this teaching is they'll, they'll clip out part of verse 28 and say, no one shall snatch them out of my hand, referring to Jesus. Or verse 29, where no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. These are true facts. These are, these are written in God's word. <clears throat> but they can be taken out of context. And 
if you look at the overall passage of what's going on here, um, Jesus is actually excluding the scribes and the Pharisees who were full of righteousness, they were full of teaching, but it was self-made righteousness. And so he's telling them, you're not my sheep. He's, he's just finished telling them that. And it picks up in verse 27, or let's go to verse 26. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Uh, that's, that's an important verse for us to keep in mind when we think of what comes next. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one that is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. <clears throat> so these can be great comfort and great assurance to us, but we need to keep this, this in context and I hope I haven't caused anyone to turn off at this point and not hear the rest of the message because I've challenged maybe a, a concept or teaching that's very, very near and dear to them. I'd ask you to hear this out, please. So uh, another, another type of uh, teaching that's used is uh, to take someone who uh, wishes to be saved and say, okay, we're going to read these selected verses and we're going to follow the Roman road to salvation the implication is there's no need to read the rest of the book. We're just going to pick these things out that we need to, uh, to lead, you, lead you to where you need to go. There's nothing wrong with using scriptures to teach someone where they need to go, but we need to keep them, keep them drawn into the Word, and it does a disservice to the book of Romans just to take a few verses out and use those. Uh, there, needs to be, there needs to be more than that. It's the it can be the beginning, but it can't be the end. Another teaching that is used is name it and claim it. Uh, and the idea here is God loves you. You deserve it. You deserve salvation. You deserve to be comfortable. You deserve to be rich. You deserve to have a big family. You deserve to have a great job. Do we really? Um, and another, uh, yet another teaching is if you have fill-in-the-blank experience, then you know the Spirit is in you. Um, and this is sometimes used to challenge people as to uh, the superiority of a particular teaching or religion to another, another, form of, uh, another form of Christianity. And so there's many others. Um, and uh, if I've stepped on anyone's toes, mine were stepped on first because I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks now and maybe longer than that. And so, uh, as uh, Von Means used to say, Dickie brought a pretty rough message today. I wish he'd warned us we would have worn our steel toes. <laughs> and uh, bless his heart, he could deliver some powerful messages because he was true to God's Word. I believe confusion is created by considering the action of repentance and seeking salvation as a one-time experience. One and done. You do this and you're good, you're good to go. You don't need to do anything else. Go on and live your life. <clears throat> we must also consider sanctification. That's a big word and many of us, myself included, avoid it because what's that mean? You know, what's that word actually mean? And the, the, what it means is pretty simple. It means being set apart and to become more like Christ. 
And as we can see in 1 John, that's what John is talking to us about, is we need to be more like Christ. But we also see how Paul uh, describes this in the book of Philippians. And uh, turn with me there, please, to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 2, chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. Consider that expression, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, I don't think I've ever heard a message preached on that before, focused on that, because it can be a confusing thing to us. We can look at it and say, well, wait a minute, I'm already saved. I don't need this verse. I'm just going to go on and, uh, and read, read further, further in this book. But what is, what is Paul telling us here? What is John telling us in 1 John? You know, it's our nature, human nature, to seek shortcuts and to find easy solutions to actions that require a significant amount of work. Some of that is good, that's called ingenuity. But why would we think that something that's so important, such as salvation, could be anything less than life-changing and a lifelong action? It's not one and done. It's not, I said this prayer and I'm good for the rest of my life. That's why John says in verse 29, everyone who practices righteousness also has been born of him. <clears throat> so the, uh, you look at that and you say, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, and the him is referring to Jesus. So that aspect of practice righteousness implies an active and continuous action, uh, much like a legal practice. You know, someone who's engaged in a legal practice does that actively. So active and continuous righteousness is the assurance of being saved and being in Christ. That's what John is telling us. Righteousness cannot be achieved by our own actions. I spent a lot of time in my youth wondering if I was good enough to be saved. Part of that was just natural doubt. Part of that was the, uh, the particular church or faith that I was, I was involved in. But we also see in a much more dramatic and painful pursuit of repentance, Martin Luther punished himself with floggings with that idea of how can I get to the point where I'm right? How can I walk with Christ? And he would, uh, he would punish himself with these beatings, these floggings and other things to, with the idea of I need to get myself right with God. Uh, Praise God, he came, he came to peace after studying the Scripture some more and found, and found the way which we benefit from because he led the way in the Protestant Reformation. But as far as these concepts, uh, these points of view are correct. No one's good enough, and we all deserve floggings. You know, fortunately, we don't get what we deserve. Um, but 
those points of view don't lead to righteousness, Jesus states that even a lifelong pursuit of self-made righteousness is not enough. We find this in Matthew 5.20, and we've heard this verse before. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> so that's another verse that makes you think, what's that? What does that mean? What is he, what is he saying here? So uh, we find what he's saying, John is teaching us in 1 John, the right, that righteousness is found in Jesus. Jesus is the support, so, I mean, he's the source for the surpassing and lasting righteousness that we find in verse 29. But now let's move on to chapter 3, verse 1, to continue following John's teaching. <clears throat> Excuse me. Righteousness through Jesus is provided by the Father's love for us. Let's look at verse uh, 1 in chapter 3, 1 John. See how great a love the Father has given us that we would be called the children of God, and in fact we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Other translations begin this verse with the word behold to distinguish and emphasize the importance of the gift of love that comes from God. The Greek word used here is aiditi, which means to stare at, to discern closely. So it's not a passing. The NASB says, see how great a love. This is a see as in concentrate, look at this closely and consider this. So how great a love we are given uh, in this verse. The very best the Father has. Jesus Christ, his only Son. That's the love that's being described here. That's the love that the Father has given to us. His only begotten Son, given at great cost. Some commentators note that this great love is required so we can become God's children. In McLaren's expositions and Let's be cautious with this because this is commentary. It's not scripture. McLaren says on this passage, but if we are to translate with perfect accuracy, we must render not that we should be called, but in order that we should be called the sons of God. The meaning then is that the love bestowed is the means by which the design that we should be called his sons is accomplished. So the idea, he says in very elevated language, is that this was a requirement for us to be saved, and Jesus himself said that uh, when he was on his way to the cross. That was, a, that was a requirement. So John also emphasizes we are not only called God's children, but we truly are God's children. This means the unsaved world is not going to understand us just as it did not understand Jesus I have a, a simple example from one of my uh, tenures in jury duty. I was, in, I was called for a particular jury, that was, jury panel that was going to decide the punishment for a person who had been convicted of murder. And so the, uh, they spent a great deal of time telling, uh, telling us about the New Mexico laws, separate the trial from the punishment. And I responded in my questionnaire, that the biblical, my biblical beliefs only allowed me to uh, come to one verdict on this, which this person would, be, would forfeit their life. And so that didn't go over very well with the defense lawyer or the judge. 
you know, and they uh, got up and they, when, once they uh, saw that quite the, my uh, objection was based on being a Christian, it was, it was actually funny to watch because they started talking more slowly and using smaller words like I was an idiot. <laughs> Seriously. And uh, they were very patronizing about, well, the law is this, you know, and you really need to, you really need to consider this. And I said, sorry, I said, it's not a, in my mind, it's not a question. This is what the Bible, what I get from what the Bible teaches me. So this was a case the world didn't understand where I was coming from, and they just looked at, looked at me, this guy is old. He's crazy, let's get him out of here. You're out of here, you're off this, you're off this jury panel. We want nothing to do with you. So Jesus describes our position more plainly in the Gospel of John. So in John 15, verses 17 through 18, This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. So that's a, that's kind of a rough, a rough note, isn't it, to think that, wow, if we follow God, we follow Jesus, the world's going to hate us. No one likes to be hated. I mean, you want to be accepted. Uh, you don't want to go through life having people dislike you because of the way you look or what, what you believe in. But uh, Jesus has spoken. He spoke these very words. The world, the world hated me before it hated you. But so uh, that's a difficult thing for us to, uh, to take on as well. So on that positive note, we're going to move on to verse 2. And we're going to look at this uh, somewhat cryptic verse. This is, uh, can be difficult to understand. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, We are children of God. Behold, now we are children of God. It has not happened as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Okay, that's pretty clear. Let's go on to the next verse. <laughs> No, I'm, uh, I'm not trying to make light of God's Word, just my understanding of it. Because when I looked at it, I was like, wow, what is he saying here? And, uh, you know, the temptation is, well, I'm just going to read on. But uh, let's glean, or I'll share the little bit that I gleaned from it. So John again repeats, we are children of God, but moves from a, the future tense he used before, which was we would, to... Now we are. That's an active tense. So now we are children of God. When these things are repeated in Scripture, it's assurance of an important point that we need to comprehend. It's not because um, he forgot what he, John forgot what he said in verse 2. He's emphasizing this. But as verse 2 continues, it becomes more difficult. What does this phrase mean that starts, it has not appeared as yet what we will be? So, Again, uh, I have a couple commentaries. This is not Scripture, but McLaren's commentary perfectly describes my, the difficulty I felt in trying to elaborate on this verse because I really didn't know what to say. What does, this, what does this actually mean? So McLaren says, I have hesitated, as you may well believe, whether I should take these words for a text, meaning as a message. They seem so far to surpass anything that can be said concerning them, and they cover such immense fields of dim thought that one may be well afraid lest one should spoil them by attempting to dilate on them, or to dilate meaning to expand on them. 
So, uh, as McLaren says, he was he-, he hesitated to go to go further into this verse because all he could do was spoil it. He couldn't really he couldn't really explain it. Matthew Poole in his commentary uh, helps us understand why this verse is so cryptic and difficult to understand. Matthew Poole says, again, this is commentary, it is yet an unrevealed thing, as in Matthew or as in Romans 8.18. A veil is drawn before it, which is to be drawn aside at the appointed season of the manifestation of the sons of God. So it's something uh, that's not for us to understand at this time. At some point, we, we will understand. And Romans 8.18 uh, really reflects that as well. For I consider these th- these that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So Paul in Romans also points ahead to a future revelation, just as John is in this verse. And so since the latter part of this verse is prophetic, we need to use childlike faith and accept this marvelous truth that we're going to be made like Jesus. I don't, we don't know how that's going to happen or what that's going to look like. So the full meaning of this verse we've made clear to us at the second coming of Jesus. And so I, I decided at this point I'd leave the mysteries of verse 2 to the next teacher. <laughs> As a, a one, Owen and I, one of our co-workers used to say, good luck with that <laughs> when, you'd, when you'd encounter a particularly difficult problem. So we're going to move forward and we'll conclude in verse 3. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. This verse is about purification. And everyone who has this hope set upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so as we look at that verse, if we weren't humbled by the realization that we need to be righteous, this concept of a sinful man or woman needing to be purified should do it. We should be pretty humble after we read after we read this verse. And as I'm saying this, please don't think I'm saying this because I've arrived at these behaviors like I'm, I've mastered this and now I'm lecturing you guys about this. It's, I've just had more time to think about this and to be convicted of, uh, of the difficulty, the difficulty of being righteous, of being pure. And if we think we could arrive at purity on our own, Consider the standard of purity as Jesus Christ himself. So as we stop for today, let's consider uh, this, is, this verse 3 is not a prophetic instruction for the future, but what do we need to do to purify ourselves? So as we close, it's humbling to think about the simple and yet complex teaching of John. Uh, he speaks to us as children and yet, there's very difficult things and some things that soar to the clouds in terms of us trying to understand. For us, it's in our nature to rationalize or justify our behaviors, but John shows us that it's not what we say or think we are, it's about our actions. And so we find this teaching in James chapter 2, also the discussion about faith and works. One of the statements that James makes is faith without works is dead. So it isn't that works save you, but you have to have, you have, to have both. So our actions show whether we're obedient to Scripture, and it also shows the state of our heart. Lord, we thank you for this time we had in your word, and just uh, 
Lord, thank you for this difficult and complex teaching that John, John recorded through the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to understand, uh, help us to practice these things, Lord, to practice righteousness, to seek how to become pure, to seek to become more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, if I've said anything that uh, confused anyone or was, was an error, I just pray, pray that would be stricken, Lord, and would just uh, settle to the floor with the dust and uh, wouldn't be taken away, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.